Uh, greetings, everyone. My name is Philip Spencer. Please join with me in the reading of God's Word. In John 18, through 38. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me, that you... What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I may not have been delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come to the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Lord. Well, if you were with us last week, we started a sermon series that we're calling uh, um, Justice, Kingdoms, and Politics. And really our hope in this is not so much to tell anyone what to think about a lot of the discussions that are going on right now in terms of justice, kingdoms, and politics, but how to think. What is framing your conscience on these issues? What's what's framing your thought on these issues? And so uh, before we jump in today in in this incredible text, and there's a lot of insight that comes from John 18 for us today, I want to give you a quick review um, of last week, four things that we kind of went over last week, or a few things that we went over last week. Uh, what we, we put up here for you, and if you, if you weren't here last week, I, I'd commend this to you. Basically, these four forms or four theories, four secular justice theories, uh, four kind of framework, uh, thought frameworks that, that present for um, us or prevent for the secular world, uh, what really is justice or how do you pursue justice? And again, these are secular theories, secular thought, but I think for us, it's helpful to just kind of, it gives us a little framework uh, to understand kind of what the conversation around us in the world, uh, what it is and what's framing it and, and what's uh, motivating it. And again, one of my motivations for this whole series, uh, as I said last week, you, you can't form a conscience. You can't form uh, your thought in this on in three weeks, right? This is a 10-year project. The framing of a conscience is a long project, which is why we, we want you to be in community. We want you to be in God's word. We, we want God and his kingdom to be framing the way that you view the world. But I think, if anything, this is helpful for us in terms of how we interact with the world around us. So the first kind of forma or... Um, theory, if you will, secular justice theory. Um, and, and I'm getting this from uh, an essay that Tim Keller published about maybe two months ago um, on, um, on secular justice theory and, and, and the Bible. How do you understand these through a biblical lens? And I would certainly commend that essay to you. But the first forma that he lays out is the libertarian forma. And this group basically says that, that justice, you find justice when you have freedom. Uh, society is most just when it is most free. Um, and so they, they want to remove restrictions on individuals and, and allow individuals um, to kind of form their own way, go their own path and pursue um, their own righteousness, if you will. The second kind of forma that he outlined, and we're going through these really fast. So if you weren't here last week, we gave a, a larger treatise on each of these 
Um, and so you, I would commend that sermon to you. But the second forma, just in terms of review, is the liberal forma. And basically what he said, in this, this group, um, the justice or society is most just when it is most fair. It, it kind of operates off of a fairness ethic. Uh, and this, again, this forma would want to limit freedom, would want to kind of limit the uh, ability of some to be free or to, you know, for, for example, to have excessive wealth in order to give everyone a fair shot and everyone fairness in their rights. The next kind of format, again, we, we're moving here more from an individual perspective or individualism to more of a collective understanding is the utilitarian forma. And this group uh, has kind of the thought, the way, the best way I can describe it is majority makes right, right? Ethics and a system of justice, it's, it's when most of the majority agrees. And they say society is most just when the most people are the most happy. So it's a happiness forma. And again, this, this is very utilitarian. It's, it's based on how can we make the most, the largest majority of people happy or feel like they're getting uh, a just life. And then the final uh, forma, again, kind of moving all the way toward collectivism is the postmodern or critical theory. And this, this basically would view the world as society is most just when people have equal power, when power is equalized, when you take power away from those who might use power to oppress and give it to those who have been oppressed. So again, that's very quick snapshot. Um, but I think what these four things do is they kind of help us understand some of the conversation that's happening around us all the time. These four theories of justice. What's, what's so interesting about all of this to me, what really kind of got this whole sermon series started is that all of these folks, right? So if you're more in this camp or you're more in this camp, people that are more in any of these camps, they're all crying for justice. They're all pursuing their right view of the world, or you or we, we're all viewing our right view of the world, yet our conclusions, what we're finding in, in our culture right now, are very divided. They're very far from each other. We've landed in a very fragile and explosive place. And if you think it is not fragile or explosive right now, it's about to get even more fragile and more explosive than it's already been in the culture around us. So this is kind of a little bit of an overview of biblical or secular justice. The other thing that we did last week, and again, if you haven't, didn't listen to last week's sermon, I commend it to you. We gave a quick snapshot of biblical justice or biblical justice theory. Now, again, this is a lifelong project, right? I gave a little quick summary last week. It's gonna be even quicker today. So don't think I understand biblical justice now after this sermon, but I'm just giving you a couple of categories to think through. And the, the first thing that we saw is we kind of gave an overview of what does the Bible have to say about justice is this idea of stewardship or I'm gonna write in here community, right? So the Bible certainly recognizes individual freedom, individual rights, but it's always pushing those individuals toward the stewardship of a broader community, right? So it's okay to gain individual wealth or it's okay to have um, individual success, but with that comes individual stewardship. And that's both for the successful or for the person that has not been successful. Everybody has a stewardship. In fact, I was even thinking this week about the parable of the talents. Remember this parable where one is given five, one is given one. 
What do we learn from that? They actually all have a stewardship, even though one has five and one only has one, one has three. There's an expectation that they would steward what they have well and that they would ultimately steward in a way that serves the broader community. Again, that's something that we see all throughout scripture. The righteous man, as we said, Bruce Waltke last week, his wonderful summary of the book of Proverbs, the righteous man is the one who's willing to um, disadvantage himself in order to advantage the community. The unrighteous man is the one who's willing to disadvantage the community in order for the sake of himself. The other thing that we see um, as we look at kind of a biblical understanding of justice is what I'm going to call sanctity or human dignity. Um, we, there is this idea, you can't understand the Bible, you can't understand Christianity without it, that we see running throughout the whole scripture. And that is this idea of image of God, that God has created human beings in his image to tell a story about himself, to reflect his glory. And therefore, every human life has dignity. Every human life is sacred. It's, it's, we don't just exist in some utilitarian vacuum. We are images that God has set forward to say something about himself. And therefore, we should treat every human life with sanctity or with dignity. This includes, as we said last week, the unborn child. I was looking at Psalm 139, even this week, that we were formed, God formed us when we were in our mother's womb. This also includes the person who uh, is very old. This includes the person who is a criminal, even a criminal, even where the justice system has to step in, there's still a dignity with which we should treat every human life. This includes uh, uh, the foreigner. This includes the immigrant. There is all throughout scripture, this theme of treating humanity with dignity or with sanctity. And this even includes the person that you vehemently disagree with, right? You, you, they are a person made in the image of God. We see that running throughout all of scripture. The other thing we see, we looked at last week, is we called, we called this advocacy. And I put order underneath this. Um, I kind of like categorizing order in this place. So something we see in scripture is that we're to be advocates, right? We're to advocate, we're to speak for other people. Where you see injustice, you are responsible for the injustice of others. You're to step in and advocate for the needy. You're to be a voice for those who have no voice for themselves, as we saw in the book of Proverbs. But, but in this advocacy, uh, there's also in scripture, we see this all throughout the Bible, a sense of order. We, we, we are right to live in a society that, we were, that is not anarchist, but to ha that has order, that a system of laws, right? We understand in a fallen world that people will take advantage of one another. People will steal from one another. People will um, hurt one another. People even murder one another. And we advocate for one another through things like a justice system or even think through things like a police department that are there to protect and serve the uh, society. Again, we don't do this perfectly, but we see this calling throughout scripture to advocate for one another. And then the last thing that we saw is responsibility. That in scripture, we see both individual responsibility. There's individual responsibility placed on every person. I mentioned the parable of the talents. I talked about that when we were talking about stewardship, but I think it also applies here. The, the person with one talent, what is he called? He's called a wicked and a lazy servant. Why? Because he did not take responsibility for what God had given 
him. Uh, we see certainly in scripture responsibility for our own sin. Even if you're born into a difficult situation and, and, and born with sinful people around you, as we see, there's still personal responsibility. But also in scripture, and this cannot be ignored, we see communal responsibility. There is responsibility not just for your own actions, but for your family, for the community that you are a part of. And there's a lot of examples that I could point to in scripture. But again, quick overview of kind of a biblical order, how we understand um, justice, at least according to scripture. And then of course, these four formas of justice um, kind of according to a look at the world around us. Now, what we did last week, okay? We looked at Romans 2. It's an amazing passage, this very interesting passage that basically says this. There's enough image of God in you, in everybody, that every person, every human person recognizes something of the truth or some part of the truth. If you remember, I gave the example last week of the analogy, where I said, you can take the worst person, right? The, the, the person that cheats and steals and lies and doesn't think a thing about it, right? And as soon as you cheat him or steal from him or lie to him, you know what he'll say? He won't say, That's mo there's moral relativism, oh well. He'll say, that's wrong. You shouldn't have done that. He will appeal to what is truly righteous in the world. There's enough image of God in all of us that no matter where you fall in all of these camps, I believe you're appealing to something that is right. So if, if you fall more over here, well, well, it's likely because you're recognizing the dignity of every human life. You're recognizing individual responsibility. If you fall over here, it's, it's likely because you're recognizing advocacy for one another. You're recognizing a sense of stewardship that we're all to have. But, so we saw that in every human life, we, we all have the capacity to recognize something that is good and right. But we also saw that all of these secular systems, all of these man-made systems have major holes, major blind spots. And that's why we see what we see in the world today where someone can be so committed to their position over here and think that they're so right and someone that could be so committed to their position over here and think that they're so right and be so far from one another. But we also said last week that this does not happen in the kingdom of God. There is actual justice that exists. There is actual righteousness that exists. God is a good God. He is a just God. He's a God, he's a God of order. And in, in, in his kingdom, there, there's, no, there's no strain between the desire to want to empower someone who feels powerless and the desire to want to give freedom to the individual. There's no strain between the idea of having a fair and just society for all, people from all types, and to, to having a society where there is a sense of happiness and joy in the world. In the kingdom of God, when truth is known, when God is rightly reigning, these ideals all kind of come together. But the further we get away from this, and this is what we're seeing right now, the farther and farther 
and farther, these, if you will, kingdoms of man get from one another. And so we come to our text today. And I want to begin with this idea, this kingdoms of man or kingdom of man kind of idea. This is an interesting passage. To me, the whole like death of Jesus scene, I mean, obviously I'm a Christian, I'm interested in the Bible, but this scene is interesting to me. What happens at the death of Christ? And, and here's something, if you've never noticed this before, it's, it's a fascinating thing to think about. You have two very different people groups. On one side, you have the Romans, these exceptional Roman people. They had all read Aeneas. They all, um, or Aeneas, they all wanted to be like Aeneas. They had this idea of exceptionalism. They had this idea of a vision for who Rome was going to be that was going to bring the peace of Rome to the whole world. On the other side, you had the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders. And of course, we know from the Old Testament, they had their own story. They had their own narrative. They had their own set of laws, their own worldview. And these two groups that both had a story, they both had a worldview, they both had a set of morality. These two groups could not be more opposed to one another. They hated one another. Particularly the religious leaders were supposed to hate the Roman leaders because they were supposed to free the Jewish people. They were supposed to usher in a new peace of Jerusalem, a new reign of Jerusalem. But of course, the folks that we see in this story, and I think this is rightly understood, had, had only become a shell of what God had intended them to be, what God desired them to be. In fact, they were so blinded by their own pursuit of power. They were so blinded by their own kind of religious authority that when the Messiah, God's Messiah for the people of Israel was right in front of their eyes, they wanted to put him to death. They couldn't see him. They were so blinded by their own, by their own personal pursuits that they, they were trying to crucify Jesus. But what's always interested me in this story is, you, if you will, you have two kingdoms that traditionally had been very opposed to each other coming together in this moment to put Jesus to death. And, and we catch Pilate kind of in the middle of it. And it's very interesting for him. But before we go there, I, I want to say this. And if, if, you, if, you don't catch, if you don't catch anything else I say today, I want you to hear this. Every person in the same way that the Romans kind of had a story and viewed themselves in a certain way, in the same way the Jews had a story and viewed themselves, every one of you is a part of a narrative. You're, you're forming your identity as a part of some story. There's some form that's creating you. Morality doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? Ideologies don't just exist. It's not like there's just an idea out there. It's all a part of a system, of a story, right? And so if you're kind of on this side of the map, you, you may really kind of identify with the American pull yourself by your own bootstraps kind of story that we have told in this country, this kind of theme of America. If you're ever on this side, you may find yourself in kind of the oppressor oppressed narrative, but there's something that's framing the way that you understand the world, the way that you are viewing the world. No one is excused from this, right? I don't care who you are, where you've come from, right? You could be uh, 
a Christian, you've been a Christian your whole life, and that is helping to frame your story. Or you could be uh, an atheist very far from the Lord, but there's some narrative that you are appealing to. There's some way that you are making sense of the world. And that's certainly um, obvious here. You have these two competing stories coming together, and Pilate is confused. So let's pick up in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus, and he's confused. He said, are you the king of the Jews? Here I am a Roman, yet these Jewish people want to put you to death because you're claiming to be their king. What is going on? Like, who do you think you are? Why are they coming to me? Why do your own people want to put you to death? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate says, wait a second. I don't know, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Why are they so angry with you? These are your people. Why are they, why are they teaming up with us, the Romans, to put you to death? Are you a king? Are you some sort of king? Or are you an enemy king? What kind of king are you, Jesus? Are you this kind of king? Are you this kind of king? Because it seems like there's some tension going on. You're being delivered over to death. What, whose kingdom do you represent? Verse 36, and Jesus answered, my kingdom, as if to say, yes, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Pilate says, is your loyalty here or here or here or here? And you know what Jesus says? It's nowhere. I got a whole different thing. <laughs> I, I got a whole different plane I'm operating on. You see, the, the kingdom of Jesus doesn't lie here, here, here. It lies here. Basically what Jesus is saying is, you're, you're missing the point. I'm on a whole different axis than, than you're on. You guys are fighting along this horizontal axis here, but I'm, I'm on a vertical axis. It's not that my kingdom is not in this world, and we're gonna talk about that later. The kingdom of Christ is present in the world, but it's just not of this world. It's just not like anything you've ever seen. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, if it were, my servants would be fighting because that's what the kingdoms of the world do. You know, people have said, how did we get to this explosive place this fragile place. It, to me, something that I've noticed, really the thing that I think kind of led us to want to do this sermon series. Here's something I've noticed, and I've noticed this among Christians. I've noticed it among people that aren't Christians. That there are people that I know that I'm friends with that maybe have traditionally been over here. And they've recognized or they've seen just some things going on, you know, in particular, even this year, some of the... Uh, protests and some of that have become violent and just other things going on. They hear some of the language of, of some political figures and, and it's, it's encouraged them to actually pull further this way. They've become more committed and more distant from people over here. And at the same time, I know people over here and, and you know, maybe 
the provocatory nature of the president or just uh, the, 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 the seemingly distant things, the distance of this side over here is actually called them to, to pull even further this way. And what do we see? What do we see? We see exactly what I'm talking about. Where, where as we get further and further away of the kingdom of God, where all of these ideals come together, we, we sink further and further and further into the kingdoms of man. My kingdom is not of this world. If it was of this world, my servants would be fighting because that's what the kingdom of the world does. That's what the kingdoms of the world is like. And I just want you to hear this. What is going on? What is happening now? This is humanism. This is what humanism does. This is what humanism must do. There's no other conclusion in a humanistic worldview. Now, some of you have heard me say this before. But I think that the anthem, if you're trying to understand, what is humanism? What, what does he mean? The anthem of humanism is the old song from the 1980s, We Are the World. You know that song? Now, some of you like it. I like it too. It's a, it's a cool song. It is the anthem of humanism, but it's catchy. But you know the song, Michael Jackson, and he's with all, like everybody, if you've seen the video, it's like everybody, like Bruce Springsteen, Stevie Wonder, uh, even like Bob Dylan. I mean, everybody is in the video. And they say, we are the world. We are the world. We are the children. We are the ones who will make a brighter day. So let's start giving. And then here's what it says. There's a choice we're making. We're saving our own lives. It's true. We'll make a brighter day. Just you and me. We're all we need. We are the world. We just need one another. We'll make a brighter day. We, we actually can save our own lives. Just you and me. Now, here's the problem with humanism. It sounds great. I, I like it, right? I mean, I love the song. I, I like the way that sounds. But here's the problem. If we are the world, right? If we can make a brighter day, if we can save our own lives, but there's still injustice in the world. There's still pain in the world. If we're gonna be the answer, yet pain still exists and injustice still exists and evil still exists, then what's the problem? What happened? What happened to the brighter day? You know what happened? You know what happened? Them. It was, everything was going great. If, if you would just listen to us, we will make a brighter day, but he or her, they're in the way. It's her fault. Did you hear about what she did? Have you seen what he did? It's them. It's them. They're the problem. And thus we digress further and further and further toward the kingdom of man. And here's the warning to you, oh church-going friends. Humanism is really good at capturing the heart of Christians. It's really good. Here's how it does it. It kind of throws out something that Christians like. Actually, it's interesting. In the song, We Are the World, there's a line. Uh, if you go back and listen to it, it's the part where Willie Nelson starts singing. And he says, you know, in his Willie Nelson way, he's like, as God has shown us. You know. But he says, he says, as God has shown us by turning stones to bread, 
And so we all must lend a helping hand. Humanism does this to Christians. You hear that and you're like, oh yeah, yeah. I know the story about God's turning stones to bread. But what's interesting about that, what's interesting about that is that actually in the Bible, God doesn't ever turn stones to bread. That story is actually where Satan tempts Jesus to turn the stones to bread and he doesn't. But illiterate Christians hear that and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. God has shown us turning stones to bread. We almost learned it. We are the world. And they jump in. I want you to hear this. Humanism does this. There is a humanism on the left that says, look, your faith is important, but it's meant to be private. It's, it's not meant to be taken in the public square. It's for you. Your faith is important for you. It gives you strength. It's a kind of a therapeutic Jesus. Jesus is therapist. So you need a time of reflection. You need a little inspiration. And this kind of Christianity, this humanistic Christianity, the Bible is underplayed. The local church is underplayed. You are lifted up. You need this for you. So you can go make a brighter day. And there's also a humanism on the right. And in this kind of thing, Jesus becomes what I would call like the defender of American values, right? It's Jesus that's going to defend these true American values. You know, people will quote Second Chronicles 7, 14, you know, the verse, if my people will humble themselves, then I will heal their land. And, and it, they kind of say this to mean, if Christians would just pray enough, then the right candidate will be elected and everything will be okay. Jesus is a defender of American values. I just want you to hear this. Jesus, the true Jesus, he's not a therapist. He's the Lord. He's the king of everything. He has all authority. Jesus, the true Jesus, he's not the defender of somebody else's kingdom. He's primarily concerned with his own kingdom. He is the true king the one that is worthy of all our worship and all our praise. He is not some utilitarian tool that can be used. Which brings us to the second point, which is the kingdom of God. We've looked at the kingdoms of man, but what about the kingdom of God? The amazing thing is this. I want you to hear this, friends. When you become a Christian, if you are a Christian, then, then what it means to become a Christian is to transfer planes you go from being primarily concerned about this plane to being primarily concerned about this plane. Th this is the plane that, that I am worried about, that, that you must be worried about. You have transferred planes. You've transferred kingdoms. Colossians 1, which are my favorite passage of scripture, right in the middle of it. I love the way Paul says this. He's talking about what the Father has done for us. And he says, Paul says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God has changed our kingdom alliance. The world is primarily concerned with moving people this way or this way. You gotta get 51% of the people over here or over here. But we as Christians, please hear this, are mostly concerned with moving people this way or having people fall this way. Now, again, I in no way want to lighten the real stewardship that God has given you and me as American citizens to be concerned with this plane. We're gonna talk about that next week. But it's just not our primary plane. 
It's not our primary focus. It's not our primary hope. It's not our primary kingdom. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that the church has thrived in times when it has been oppressed and when it's been free. And the church has been really weak in times when it's been oppressed and in times when it's been free. Ultimately, this is not the plane of greatest concern. This is the plane of greatest concern. You know, all the kingdoms of this world, I want you to hear this, all the kingdoms of this world are temporary. Every, there, there is no kingdom, there is no country that has lasted or that will last forever, including the United States of America. But the kingdom of Christ is eternal. It is forever. It matters not just every two years, but for the next 20,000 years. The kings of this world all have some means by which we prove our righteousness. I want you to hear this. All of these kingdoms, they're grabbing for signals. You know, Blake and I have talked a lot about this. We live in a very anxious age, right? You know, you, you wanna be signaling the right thing. Are they gonna think I'm this, you know? If you're over here, it's like, am I, am I, is I, am I patriot enough, you know? Or if you're over here, it's like, am I woke enough? Am I, am, I, am I putting out the signal that is right, that people are seeing, or? That's the way the kingdoms of the world works. You have to be signaling the right things. The beauty of the kingdom of God is that Jesus has achieved righteousness for us. We don't have to signal our way to righteousness. We can actually come in free knowing that we have a savior who loves us and is calling us into himself by his own righteousness and by his sacrificial death on the cross. The kings of this world, they all make promises. You know, for some of you old people, and again, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, we don't want to become cynical, right? But we've seen candidates come and go. They make this promise. They make that promise. You know, all political candidates, here's what they do. If you're young, you're just getting into the election cycle, I'll go ahead and tell you, here's what, here's what people do. They, they set themselves up as somebody who's oppressed. They create fear. And then they say, I will answer that fear, right? Every candidate for the history of the world has done that. If you don't believe me, just read world history. Okay, that, that is what they do. And you know what they rarely do? They rarely, not all the time, but they rarely follow through on the promises they make. But Jesus is the king that always has and always will come true on the promises that he makes. It's a better kingdom. Our goal in Christ, what you're called to in Christ, oh, hear this, is not to be so concerned with this plane that you sacrifice who you are on this plane? Are, are you moving toward the kingdom? Does Christ have more authority in your life? Is his reign more fully known through you and in you? Now, here's the deal. This is what, one of the questions I wanted to answer. People say, okay, Jason, okay, okay. Kingdom of God, I get it, I get it but I've got to live in this plane and I got to go to work and there's people over here and they're saying stuff and there's people over here and they're saying stuff. How do I have actual discourse with them? How do I have actual conversations with them without it blowing up? Do I have to just be quiet all the time in order to serve this kingdom? How do I actually influence the world around me? And, and I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about it through what I call the Matt Hauser principle. Now, 
There's this guy, Matt Hauser. He has no idea that I've named a principal after him. But when I was in seventh grade, okay, I was playing football at Whitesburg Middle School there in Huntsville, Alabama. I was on kind of a seventh grade scrub linebacker. We were going against the starters, trying to give a good look on defense. And there's this guy, Matt Hauser, who Matt Hauser, I mean, the whole Hauser family, if you know them in Huntsville, actually somebody came out of church in the first service was like, oh yeah, I know the Hausers. They're studs. I mean, they're, they're thick, they're strong, they're tough. Like Mr. Hauser, the dad, if you shook his hand, you're like, man, this guy has not had like moisture on that hand in 25 years. I mean, it's just, it's just, I mean, they're just tough dudes, okay? And Matt Hauser may have been the toughest of all the Hausers. And so Matt Hauser was playing guard and he was blocking me. And to be honest, he was kind of having his way with me that day. And I was getting frustrated. And at one point I kind of mouthed off to him. Well, after practice, Matt Hauser comes into the seventh grade locker room with five or six other eighth graders. Okay, he's an eighth grader, I'm a seventh grader. He comes in and he says, all right, Dees, you think you're tougher than me? Why don't you prove it right here, right now? And I was like, no, I'm fine. I'm, you're, you're, you're probably tougher than I am. So... Anyway, I, after that day, I was always kind of embarrassed. I was always kind of ashamed of myself. And I was always a little, I was a little intimidated by Matt Hauser. So three years later, okay, now, now I'm a 10th grader, okay? I'm trying to make a spot on the starting varsity squad at Grissom High School. And I'm trying to, you know, getting in there and they, I get my big break. They put me in at tight end, okay? And it's a one-on-one -on -one scrimmage, ones versus ones. And it's my first big play and we're gonna run a toss sweep. Here I am over here at tight end, basic toss sweep. And you got the defense here. You know, pull the guard, kick out the backer. Okay, but my assignment, my assignment, down block here, reach block here. Anyway, my assignment is to block down on this defensive tackle. And who do you think was playing defensive tackle that day. You know, it was Matt Hauser. But it wasn't just Matt Hauser. It was a bigger and badder 11th grade Matt Hauser, okay? And so I'm running up to the line. I got a block down on Matt Hauser. And you know, this is my moment. I got, I mean, I'm shaking. I get down, I get down my three-point stance. Down, set, hike. Well, it just so happens. I go after Matt with all my might. It just so happens on this play, on this God-ordained play that they had called, the defensive coordinator had called for the defense a slant right, okay? They were slanting away from the action of the play. He was slanting the way that I wanted to block him. And so I hit Matt Hauser and I'm thinking, I was expecting the collision of collisions, but actually he was already going that way. And I, little Jason Dees, was able to block Matt Hauser all the way up the field and it was a pancake block. And after, it may have been one of the greatest moments of my entire life. And after that, and after that, I never was not a starter. I was a starter from then on out. I pancake block Matt Hauser. All right, what is the Matt Hauser principle? Okay, if you wanna have influence, Let's say you're over here and you wanna have influence over somebody over here. The way to start is not to say, I can't believe how individualistic you are. 
how unconcerned you are with people, how, how, how you could do this or be a part of this group. That's gonna create a collision. If Matt Hauser had been coming this way and I was going this way, it wouldn't have been the same result. Rather, appeal to them, especially if they're a Christian, obviously, what, why may they be over there? They, well, they may be over there because they believe in the sanctity and dignity of individuals. They believe in individual responsibility. Appeal to them based on the, the way that they're already moving. And then as you come alongside from them and understand where they're coming from, what is motivating them? Here's the deal. You'll be able to influence them and they may even be able to influence you. And together, if you submit to the Lordship of Jesus, you'll both be moving in a Godward direction. If you see somebody over here and you're over here, the best way to start is not to say, how stupid, how could you fall into all that? No, maybe they're over here because you know what? They have a genuine concern for stewardship or advocacy. They have an understanding that there's some corporate responsibility. Why don't, why don't you meet them there? And understand, hey, why, why, why do you think this way? Why are we so different? And maybe as you do in that kind of discourse, you'll be able to both move together, be able to influence one another and both move together in, in a more Godward direction. Now, here's the deal. I'm gonna go ahead and tell you right now. That kind of discourse, that kind of conversation really matters on this plane. It really matters on this plane. And it ultimately will matter on this plane. But the temptation will be, it, it, here's the thing, it doesn't really move very fast on this plane. And if you're in a like two-year cycle where I got to get everybody thinking, like I got to think every two years, you're going you're gonna to be getting this, we're going to keep going this way. But if you can say, look, I care about people. <laughs> I'm not just a part of a kingdom that recycles every four years. I'm a part of a kingdom that is a 20 million year project. And you're gonna have a lot of influence toward people in this way. Look, I've had a lot of people say to me recently, man, this is time for Christians to stand up and fight and believe in what they believe in and, and be courageous. And to that I would say, well, yeah, Christians should always be courageous, right? Christians should always stand up for what they believe in. Now's not the time for that. All of the time is the time for that. But I believe in what, I believe what they're saying when people say that. It's, it's not that they're saying too much. It's not that they're asking too much of Christians. It's actually that they're not asking enough of Christians. You are a part, hear this, you are a part of something so much bigger than any kind of plane this way or this way. And the way that you steward your life and your influence doesn't just matter for the next four years or for the next 40 years of American life. It matters for the next 4,000 years. You know, I want America to be a nation that lives by Christian principles and that has Judeo-Christian values, but I actually want much more than that for America. I don't want just people to live by Christian values. I want people here to be Christians. <laughs> Ultimately, what I desire is for people to submit to the true King, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I think there's a lot of believers out there that are so concerned with this plane that we have lost sight of this plane 
and we get swept right up into the humanism of the world. You know, the only reason I'm here, the only reason I live in America, you know why I live in America? is because God and his providence put me in America to be an ambassador for his kingdom. His kingdom is forever. And people say, well, well, you know, yeah, the kingdom is coming, but now we have a responsibility here. No, you're missing my point. A few weeks ago, I talked about the kingdom. The kingdom is the reign of Christ. If you are a Christian, the kingdom is not something that's just coming. The kingdom is something that is here now. Is it present in your life? Are you living in such a way to where the true king is reigning? Or have you given yourself over to another kingdom? Is the reign of Christ obvious in your life and present in your life? Are you moving this way and leading others to do the same? Are they seeing, oh, this is my true hope. This is my true anchor. And again, yes, we have a stewardship here. We're gonna talk about that next week. But are you finding your identity here first? Have you submitted to this true king first? And look, here's the invitation of the gospel is you can. This kingdom invites all to come to him, all to rest in him, all to be forgiven by him. We're not worthy of this kingdom, but Jesus has made us worthy. Not by our own righteousness, but by his righteousness, by his forgiving death on the cross. He calls us in. Now, I want you to hear this. If you're really submitting to him, He will challenge you. He will challenge you. I was talking to somebody after the first service and I said, here's the question. Are your kingdom ethics framing your political ethics or are your political ethics framing your kingdom ethics? And I just wanna say this. If Jesus never challenges your political ethics, if he never challenges you, if, he, if, if you never see something in the Bible that you, don't disagree, that you kind of disagree with a little bit or find hard to understand, then chances are you're not actually following Jesus. You're just following some idol that you've made up, some figment of your imagination. Jesus will challenge you. Of course he'll challenge you. He's a king. Who are you? But here's the deal. He loves you. And he's proven his love for you in the most profound way. He's proven his love for you by, as a king, humbling himself to come to your level, and not just to come to your level, but to actually take on all of your debt, all of your sin, everything that is broken in you, Jesus has taken on and died in your place and offers you life and righteousness in his eternal kingdom. He is a good king. Are you you lost in the darkness of one of the kingdoms of this world, or have you, by God's grace, been transferred into this kingdom of light? 